Father, that is where our gaze must permanently be fixed on your Son in all of his glory, in his beauty and majesty. And Lord, help us now as we open your word to see precisely that, to see the glory of Christ, the, the glory of our Savior who has, who has come to rescue us from our sin, from our fallenness, and to bring us into the sphere of his beauty and majesty. Lord, turn our eyes to Jesus even now as we open your word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and take your seats. It is uh, a, a great privilege for me to be, once again, having the opportunity to open the word um, before you. Um, I, I really enjoyed last week's uh, message and really the whole service uh, UCLA, you guys have, you, you've got it really good at UCLA GOC. Um, not only do you have um, a great preacher in Matthew Ng, um, but the man can sing too and like play instruments. Like I can only, I, I just preach. I <laughs> you don't want me to sing. Um, sorry, Valley. Um, but it was, a, it was a privilege to hear from Matt. And it, it always is. Matt is, is, um, one of my favorite preachers, and whenever he gets the call, it's, it's an exciting day to hear him open the word. And he took us to the book of James. So that's where you can actually turn this morning. If you've got your Bible, you can open to the book of James. I, I want to keep us there. I know um, with having different preachers come in, sometimes there can be you know, a, a bit of a um, jolt, and so I wanted to give us some continuity as much as we could. Uh, he did such an excellent job kind of not only expounding on the sort of practical atheism that we experience in our day-to-day lives, forgetting God in our decisions, but he did a great job at giving us the heart of the book of James. And so I thought we'd stay there and continue in James. And and we'll be looking at James chapter 2, focusing on verses 14 through 26. So why don't I just read those? You can follow along, uh, and then we'll, we'll unpack them together. James writes these words in in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the very word of the living God. We talk a lot about faith in the Christian church, don't we? Belief and faith. But I have a question for you this morning. How how do you know that the faith you possess is real, genuine, that is true faith? If faith is the key to unlock the gates of heaven for you, how do you know you've got the, the real deal? It's a very biblical question because we see throughout the pages of Scripture, there is such a thing as fake faith. My mind immediately goes to John chapter 2, where Jesus is 
doing miracles and teaching and astounding the crowds. And it says in John chapter 2, the end of the chapter, uh, the, the, the crowds believed in him. And Jesus turns around and looks at the crowd and says, yeah, but I don't believe in them because I know what's in their hearts. It was a fake faith. Whatever sort of belief they had in Jesus wasn't the saving kind. You know, there's a really terrifying story in Acts chapter 8. The gospel has gone forth. The church is sort of exploding. And Simon the magician hears a preacher preach the gospel. And it says he believed faith. In fact, he was probably a front row Baptist. I know that's a, you know, typically back row. This guy was zealous. He got baptized. Five or six verses later, he has a conversation with Peter where Peter says, may your money go to hell with you. For you have no part or lot in this matter. I pray that if possible, you would repent. But he had faith. And yet Peter says, it's fake. How do you know if the faith you possess is genuine. A few years ago, in 2019, The Atlantic um, produced uh, or came out with an article titled, Movie Prop Cash is Fooling Cashiers. Movie Prop Cash is Fooling Cashiers. Um, It's an article about movie money and the fact that movie money used to be um, highly regulated. So the the FDA or whoever knew how much movie money had been created. And I got to move around. I can't do this. (laughs) Let's see here. We got it. Okay. There it is. That feels better. It's too short. Um, Oh, you're too short. Sorry, Riley. No short jokes. Hey, he said it. He said it. I didn't say it. I just repeated it. He told his own joke. So, so the Atlantic comes out with this article um, about movie money being deregulated. And the problem that this is actually posing, because people can go on Amazon, I checked, and for 10 bucks you can purchase 10 grand. Movie money. This is the kind of money that when um, you see this, the car speeding down, uh, the, the city streets being chased, and it you know, crashes, explodes, and all this cash goes flying in the air. They're not actually destroying cash. Um, it's movie money. But you can buy it, and you can use it. And what they, this article in The Atlantic was pointing out was the fact that it's actually entering circulation because a cashier at Walmart doesn't care what kind of money you give them. In fact, the article says, give, give the cashier at Walmart a $3 bill, they'll give you change. It's movie money. Now, it's obviously fake. You just need to look a little closer. It it might have wording on it that says, for counting purposes only. There's actually one uh, form of this, which is the kind I didn't purchase because it's so obvious, um, that, I'm kidding, that if if you look at the White House on the the bills, it's actually labeled Donetsk City, which is the name of a shopping mall in Ukraine. So if you look close enough, It's clearly fake. It's not the real deal. But most people don't care. Money is money. They just assume it's genuine. Uh, You know, this actually does have serious consequences, though. In 2017, a Georgia man was killed when he tried to buy seven kilos of cocaine with $230,000 in movie money. There was a, a young boy just a, a year later who tried to buy 200 bucks of weed in Texas and was also killed. Why? Because drug dealers care about their cash. So they check. So here's a tip if you guys are taking notes. If you're going to use movie money, buy groceries, not drugs. Got it? Uh, you, you know, the same, the same could be said of faith. Um, we just assume so often, don't we, that our faith is genuine. But James doesn't make that assumption with faith. 
If money is serious, faith is even more serious. And James has a concern that some of the people he's writing to have been fooled by fake faith. And so if fake money has serious consequences in a drug deal, try using fake faith to get into heaven and you'll wake up in hell. what happened to the crowd in Matthew 7, isn't it? They get to the gates. They meet Christ. Lord, Lord. We did many. We we cast out demons in your name. And what does he respond? Depart from me. I never knew you. So again, I ask you, how do you know if your faith is real? James cares about authentic faith. And so in this section of verses, he exposes the counterfeit and shows us the genuine. And to do so, he introduces us to three characters. I actually thought about um, picking three of you out of the crowd to come up and and put you on stage to demonstrate these characters. But you'll find in a minute, you probably don't want that. Um, Because he introduces us to a demon. I had them selected already. Just kidding, JV. I was kidding. (laughs) A a, a pagan and a prostitute. James says, I'm going to teach you about real and fake faith. And to do so, he gives us a biographical sketch of three characters. A demon, a pagan, and a prostitute. And in that, he reveals the nature of saving faith. And so, friends, I think what will happen for us this morning as we unpack this text is that and this is my prayer, the nature of your faith would be revealed. That maybe you would be unsettled if, if you've just been assuming, well, of course what I've got is the real deal. I'm, look, well, look where I am. I'm in church. Or that you would be greatly encouraged and strengthened in your faith. That's my prayer. That's our hope as we enter in. So, so let's meet person number one that James introduces us to to teach us about faith, and it is a demon. And we see that beginning in verse 14, he writes this. "Um, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? A demon. James introduces us to a demon. Now, what we know about the demonic from Scripture is the demons were there at creation. Job tells us when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy when God created the world, the demons would have been counted among the number of angels who were in heaven during creation. The demons were very well acquainted with Jesus. So if I were to have a demon here to show and have a conversation with, you could ask them about the person and the work of Christ, and they are very familiar. In fact, we see it all the time in the Gospels, don't we? When Jesus came to earth, how many conversations he has with demons. They stand up in the synagogue and cry out, most, most high of God, the holy one of God. And, and they converse with Jesus. It's interesting to see that the demons knew Jesus was master and Lord. They spoke to him as one who had authority. They knew he was divine. One of the common titles for Jesus is um, the most high God that the demons give to Jesus. The most high God. So so I I guess the point is, um, as we look at character number one, um, this character has remarkable theology. Remarkable theology. Have you ever thought about how much the demons know intellectually? I dare say if we were to ask a demon to write a a short systematic theology, it would be a long one. I dare say if we asked a demon to write on Trinitarian theology, they would have insights that we've never considered before. 
They've dwelled in heaven with the divine. Demons have remarkable theology. And they were even subservient to Christ. And they obeyed even his disciples. In Luke 10, we're told that 72 disciples go out from Jesus and cast out devils. That, that tells you that the demons were obedient to the disciples' word. This is certainly faith. Have you thought about this? That Jesus' worst enemies believe all the same things about him that you believe. But what does a demon's faith produce? Look at what James tells us in verse 14. First, he says, it's useless. They possess a faith. You have faith, but can that faith save? The the result and the purpose of faith is salvation. But James says there is a faith that is utterly useless. And then he goes on to describe it in its uselessness as words without action in verses 15 and 16. It's the kind of words like you see your brother or sister cold or poor or hungry and you say, well, go and be well. But you don't give them a sandwich. You don't give them a jacket. He says that's, that's a useless platitude. It's words without action. So this demon calls Jesus the Holy One of God, reverences him as the most high with excellent theology, reverence with his lips, and yet there's no action behind it. Um, I think, you know, the example that that James gives here in verses 15 and 16 of, of saying, you know, if a person's poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, but you don't do anything for them. You just say, be well. You, you know, I think how that translates to modern life. I, I, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of translation necessary. But I think if we were to just think in our context of the amount of maybe social media grandstanding that goes on, where your morality and your goodness is judged by what you tweet or what you like or what you don't like or what you show outrage to. And so I, I guess the question is, um, w- But what is it producing in your life? What action is a result? Because this faith is producing nothing. I think maybe a a point of application closer to us here at Grace Church is some of us become so passionate when someone walks in who believes in such an awful thing like speaking in tongues. And our, our blood boils and we immediately got to prove them wrong. But I just wonder if that same passion kind of overtakes our soul when we see our brother or sister in need? Do do we have that same passion to say, I've got to meet that need? I think sometimes we can be so driven by our minds and by our heads. And what James is saying is there is, just so you know, a faith that exists in the head only. And it doesn't produce action. He calls it in verse 17, look there, dead. This kind of faith is dead. Not a hint of salvation, not a hint of eternal life. He'll go on, verse 20, to call this sort of faith foolish. He says, do you not know, you foolish person, that the person who possesses a faith in the mind only is a foolish person because foolish is not the same as ignorant, is it? Ignorant implies a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. Foolish implies full knowledge and yet repeated action, right? So here's the example. It's probably happened to some of us here. You walk into the glass door. Don't text and walk. Dangerous. And you walk into the glass door and you're super embarrassed. Everybody in the supermarket notices. You are ignorant because they just, the Windex was too pure. Ignorant. Can you be blamed for that? But foolish is getting up and walking into the door again. See the difference? And what he says about this faith is it's foolish faith because the demons know better. (laughs) Do they they really think they're going to win this battle with King Jesus? For crying out loud, he put them into pigs and they were helpless. Do they really think they're going to take his kingdom down? And yet they fight him anyway. 
And so James says this kind of faith, the faith of our first character is, is useless. It's words without action. It's dead and it's foolish. In verse 26, he'll use the illustration of a body without a spirit. It's a shell of a person. It's emptiness. It's a show and a shadow, but there's nothing true there. And you know, I think that we might miss it, but he really um, dramatically illustrates this in something he quotes. Look again at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Does anybody know where that comes from? It's the Shema. It's the foundational motto of Israel. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, is one. But that's not the whole thing, is it? There's a a second half to the Shema. And what's the second half of the Shema? It's a call to action, isn't it? On the basis of this reality of God, it's a call to action. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It's not an accident that James quotes the first half that the devils know well. You believe that God is one, you do well. Great theology. But he full stops. Because there's no love. There's no action to follow it. That's false faith. And friends, I'll I'll tell you this. um, It's not gnarly and scary. It it doesn't show itself so openly. It's it's a lot like movie money. Could be in your wallet right now. You wouldn't notice it unless you look closely. And the end result, we're told, is eternal destruction. Can't save. So, so character number one, thank you. You may be seated. Uh, there, there's got to be more to, to genuine faith than that. And there is, because genuine faith, James is going to show us, is holistic, involving your entire person. And to prove it, he introduces uh, us to a pagan. So he brings onto the scene a pagan. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham... Now. A quick bio sketch of Abraham. He was born in Ur of the Chaldees as an absolute heathen. Abraham was so pagan that he worshipped the moon god. He just saw the moon. It's powerful. It's big. I worship it. I mean, this is the kind of functioning religion that Abraham had. Worshipping inanimate objects. Rocks. I worship you. Trees, I worship you. Polytheistic, animistic, these things are my God. And and he he gets converted, Uh, he meets God, the true God. But even after that, he's not a particularly impressive character. He's not particularly bold. Do you remember those two times that he lied about Sarai, his wife? He goes into a town, I mean, ladies... If you're looking for a, for a fella, let's. Uh, this isn't. This is okay. You see this on his dating profile. I was going to say swipe right, but I don't think there's a Christian swipe right, is there? Um, you, you don't go for this guy who 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 goes into a bit of a hostile situation and is a little afraid for his protection. So he goes, "Oh, her? She's just my sister." <laughs> you see, ya, babe. And she's going, seriously? Twice. He does it twice. Um, Not a particularly bold guy. A bit of a liar as well. Oh, you know, interestingly about Abraham, he he never had a prophecy recorded. He didn't write any book in the Bible. We don't have a song of Abraham recorded. Nor do we have any laws. He was a simple, rugged, uh, a Bedouin-like sheep master. Not much to look at. And yet here we are, 2,000 years on, calling him Father Abraham. In Isaiah 41.8, God calls him, God calls him my friend. 
He's blessed by Melchizedek, the priest king, and he's a spiritual pillar in redemptive history. (laughs) God reveals himself in Matthew 22. Get this. God reveals himself as the God of Abraham. God would have been enough. Yahweh is a great enough name, but he says, I am the God of Abraham. Jesus points to him as the father of all those who have faith in John 8, 40. Paul mentions him nearly 20 times, building much of his argument in the book of Romans around Abraham. Peter points to him. The book of Hebrews mentions him 10 times, including twice in Hebrews 11, that chapter about faith. (laughs) How and why? And it's simple. You ready for it? Because when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham acted on that word. When God spoke, Abraham took it as fact and lived in light of it. So, when God revealed to him that I will make of you a great nation in Genesis 12, but then asked him to sacrifice his only son through whom that great nation would come, Abraham obeyed. I want you to think about that day. Genesis 22. Abraham and Sarah had been waiting years for a son. God promises them, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And they have a baby boy. The son's not not very old, a, a, a young boy, when one morning... The Lord comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to me. Now, if you read in the early verses of Genesis 22, you might miss it. But if you read it carefully, God says those words to Abraham. And the next words are, and then Abraham arose early. And he went and got Isaac. He took his boy. And over a three-day journey walks him up the mountain. (laughs) Friends, allow yourself to enter into that scene. What's going through his mind? (laughs) Many of you aren't parents, but but many of you will be. (laughs) You're holding your little boy's hand. And you know where you're going. He doesn't. And for three days, what is going through Abraham's mind? I can't imagine it's anything less than just swirling with ideas of how can God do this? And and what is God going to do? And trying to figure out if there's a loophole. Is is the word, did I hear it correctly? Did he add something that I missed? Is that really what he wants me to do? And he just keeps walking. Keeps climbing. And then Isaac starts to get curious. We're going to worship God with a sacrifice, but daddy, there's no sacrifice. I know. And he tells his boy, God, the Lord will provide. Friends, because of one word from God, Abraham acted. And he had no idea what God was going to do. But he obeyed. Why? Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. You know what that reveals about Abraham's obedience, don't you? He was going to sacrifice his son because God told him to. He believed God. And so he did something. He acted. And this is where we start to see the the essence of true faith as being holistic. Remember, I told you the dead faith with the demon 
it was stuck up here. But this true faith affected um, what Abraham did in the morning when he got out of bed. It affected his decisions, his will, his actions. And so James tells us in verse 21 of here of chapter 2, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, James teaches us, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. That's faith. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And then then James explains quite simply, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What is he telling us about faith? Okay, Abraham, have a seat. Third character to be presented is a prostitute. Verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Let's do a little bio sketch of Rahab quickly. Born into a pagan city of Jericho, a city which God saw fit as only to be destroyed. And in this pagan city, um, paganism, in, in that day was much more barbaric than even what we imagine it to be. She, even in this barbaric pagan city, was at the bottom of the social barrel. She was a prostitute. She ran a brothel, selling her body. Her sin was in her name, the prostitute. It's how we know her today. Anytime the scripture mentions Rahab, They mentioned Rahab, the prostitute. You know, it was kind of Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote about Rahab. It was kind of him to call her the innkeeper. But she was a prostitute. And the scripture never drops that moniker. Yet she too, like Abraham, was listed in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. You know, there's another list she's mentioned in. Anybody know what list it is? the genealogy of Jesus. That's what you were going to say, Lex. Alongside four outcast women, Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, in the line of the Messiah. How? Why? Because here's the, let me paint the scene for you. Um, actually, you know what? Let's go there. Go to Joshua chapter two for a minute. We have the book of Stephen, the book of Thomas, the book of Joshua. Just kidding. Um, right after Deuteronomy, we have Joshua, Joshua chapter two, and, and, and you, you can listen along, but you don't have to turn there. Um, the, the scene is that the, the people of Yahweh have been, have been taking the land by siege and their fame has gone out that the, the people of Yahweh are to be feared and they come in the form of several spies to Jericho and they find refuge at the inn. Now, I don't think we should impute immorality to these spies. It was an obvious place to go because a brothel accepts anyone as long as you have money. And we read this in chapter 2 of Joshua um, that, let me see here, um, Rahab finds them in verse 3. She, she hides them. Okay, let's pick up in verse 8. Um, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now listen to this. Remember, this is the same pluralistic, polytheistic, pagan world from which Abraham would have come. Many gods. Listen to what she says. For the Lord your God, 
He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a statement of faith in Yahweh. That though there are all of these gods from which I could choose and who I have worshipped my whole life, I have heard of Yahweh and I am testifying now that he and he alone is God in heaven and God on earth. Yahweh is the one true God. You believe that God is one, you do well. Rahab believed that God is one. She believed in Yahweh, the intellectual understanding that faith requires. But notice, it doesn't stay in the mind for Rahab. She says in verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Do you see what she's done? Not only does she assent to the reality of Yahweh, she then acts to entrust her life and her family's life to Yahweh and Yahweh alone for salvation. Effectively saying, if Yahweh doesn't save me, I'm lost. She believed that Yahweh was who he said he was. And so she acted on that belief. There's a movie that came out some years ago, which I don't recommend watching. But there's a scene um, from that movie. It's called Final Destination. The opening scene. I haven't seen the series of movies, so don't send Austin an email. Um, But I've seen this opening scene. And Final Destination is built around the premise of a young man who has premonitions of death coming for him and his friends. And over the series of however many, way too many movies they made, the story is of these young people escaping death. And the opening scene of the opening final destination is uh, this young man, along with maybe six or seven of his friends, college buddies, they're heading to Paris for vacation. And they're on the plane. And as they sit down and and it's about to take off, he has a premonition that the plane is going to take off, blow up, and be destroyed. So he starts losing his mind. So much so that the stewardesses and the, the, the pilots come and there's a commotion. They end up kicking him off the plane. But they don't only kick him off the plane. They kick all of his friends off the plane because he's claiming this, this plane is going to blow up. So his friends are mad because he's ruining their trip to Paris. And so they're in the, the airport having to go at him. Um, and he's trying to explain, I don't know. I just, I just the plane's going to explode. The plane, I can't explain it. And um, in the hustle and bustle of this, they're kind of screaming at each other. They're being held back from each other. In the background, you see the plane take off. And a moment later, it explodes. Everybody's stunned. Um, the police come to investigate and to speak with him. How did you know? But there was, a, there was a moment in the scene, just a, a couple of seconds, where there's a young woman sitting around this group of friends. And in the commotion, she hears what he's saying. The plane's going to explode. And, and the director cuts to her. She grabs her bag, slips off the plane, and quietly sits down in the corner. And, and the police come to her and say, you don't know these guys. You're not part of the group. You weren't kicked off the plane. Why did you get off the plane? And you know what she says? I heard what he said, so I got off the plane. Friends, that's faith. You hear the word of God, and so you act. You hear what he says, and so you move. Rahab heard of this Yahweh. And so she entrusted her whole soul and life to him. This is the kind of faith that James is talking about here in James chapter 2. And those actions, James says, justified her. They justified her. Now, I think here is where people want to claim um, that James is against Paul. That how, could, how could James say that it's not faith alone? Sola fide, the, 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 call, the call of the Reformation. It, what's going on here? Well, I think, honestly, guys, I think the, the solution to the debate is very simple. 
Faith is simply more than having the right theological ideas about God. Paul preaches that, and so does James. And so in this context, for James, faith and works are not two separate realities. They're two sides of the same coin. Namely, the conversion of the whole person to God. This is Christianity. Friends, Christianity is the conversion of your mind to the gospel. But not only your mind, but also your heart and your will and your body and your bank account and your calendar and your time. It's the holistic conversion of the person to Jesus Christ. It's a classic example, but I think it's a good one. That faith has three factors. Assent, acknowledgement, and action. Assent, acknowledgement, and action. And the example is um, a classic one of the chair. I could explain the concept of a chair to you, couldn't I? A chair is something that you typically has four pegs with a board across and a board on the back. And um, if you want to rest your legs, um, you can sit on this structure and it will relieve you of having to exercise your muscles. It's, it's called a chair. Do you understand? Do you? I hope so. Oh, good. Got a thumbs up. The rest of you I'm a little concerned about. UCLA? We good? Got it. Okay. You're the first ones I thought would get it because you're smarter than the other schools. Um, so, that, so that's where faith begins. You've got to understand the gospel. Uh, can I explain to you who Jesus is? And can I explain to you your state as a sinner? Yes, I understand. But the second aspect of faith is belief. D- acknowledgement. Do you think if you sat in that chair, it would hold you? Yeah, I actually do. I do. I, I do think if I were to sit, it's going to work. I understand the structure, and I believe it's going to work. But faith isn't complete, is it, until you've sat in the chair. When you've put the, the, the comfort of your body fully trusting in that chair. Let me give you another illustration. Um, when skyscrapers were first kind of taking on a more modern look with glass. Can you imagine being an accountant on the 110th floor in Manhattan at a glass skyscraper? And going, uh, I don't think I can do numbers here. As you're looking out 110 stories down. So there's a story of one boss who's, uh, whose employees were genuinely concerned. And he's explaining to them, like, this is, guys, it's, so it's not glass, like, like it's going to shatter if you throw a pebble at it. It's like plexiglass. And it's really firm. Like, it's, it's, it's just as strong as any other structure. And they're sitting there going, okay, boss. But he's feeling like they don't really believe me. So you know what he did? He, he ran back to, up the room and ran up and jumped against the plexiglass and fell to his death. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> he, what do you think? He bounced off. He bounced off. And then the worker said, got it. Okay. There's something in faith that requires a whole-souled investment that goes beyond the, the, I get it, I understand the message. Yeah, 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 Jesus was real, but have you entrusted your soul to him? And it's evidenced in action. This is what I mean by faith being holistic. But, but there's a dimension of that. If we were to look at Abraham where I think the danger would be to say, okay, I get it. So I'm only going to act and obey God insofar as I rationally can understand every dimension of what he's saying. There's a sense in faith, you see it with Abraham and his son, where Abraham doesn't exactly know why God is asking him to do what he's asking him to do. But on the basis of who God is, Abraham acts. Not on the basis of this checks out everything in how I see where this is going and how this is ending. No, no, no. Abraham was simply told, take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice. So he acts on the basis of the character of who God is. He was willing to offer up his son 
Rahab offered up her life. Do you think it made perfect sense to them in every, at every point of decision? No, but they were trusting the one who told them. They were trusting the one who promised them that he is good and he is right. And he will keep his promises. And so, friends, what James is showing us is that real faith acts. It manifests itself in a life of faithfulness. Why? On the basis of who God is. The reality that what God says, he will do. And so if he says something to you, you can believe it and base your life upon it. So as we come to a conclusion... I want to ask you again, what about you? What about your faith? We live in a world where many assume that if I believe the right truths, I'm good. I'll be on the right side of history. I think it's, um, honestly, it's just a temptation at a church like ours. A lot of preaching. A lot of teaching. It's beautiful. Wouldn't have it any other way. Otherwise, we'd change it. But, but I think the temptation in the individual soul is to rely on that intellectual knowledge and say, I'm complete. I, I believe the right things. And maybe not theologically, but practically, are we prone to divorce faith from works? But that's a misunderstanding of faith, isn't it? As, true, as Christians, true faith simply cannot separate belief from action. Posting on social media, it, it's, it, it doesn't equal courageous morality. As Christians, we go beyond that. We must live out what we claim to believe. And what James is teaching us as he's introduced us to these three characters is that true faith is demonstrated in obedient response to God, even when we can't fully understand what he's asking us to obey. But that's the kind of faith that saves. Real faith is active. Real faith gets off the airplane. So um, what's in your wallet? Isn't that a tagline for... Capital One. Um, the sermon is not brought to you by Capital One. But, but what's in your wallet, the wallet of your soul? Is it movie money or is it the real deal? Have you been fooling those tellers at Walmart with $3 bills? You know, it's easy to fool people at church with fake faith. It's easy to keep people at a distance. You know, in Matthew 7, when those went before Jesus, he said, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Jesus looked closely at their faith. And it was a faith of the intellect only. Now, um, lest you be discouraged, I know some of you may be thinking, so I need to be really courageous. I need to be really strong. I need to be really, really holy to demonstrate my genuine faith. Can I just point out the obvious of the the two characters who displayed true saving faith? Can I just point out the obvious, how weak they are? How how low and despised they are? (laughs) I, I think one of the reasons that God chose a pagan who worshiped the moon and a prostitute was to demonstrate a critical reality about the nature of faith. Namely, it doesn't matter who you are. A pagan turned into the father of God's nation or a prostitute who would be in the line to give birth to the Messiah. Faith is for everyone. You can respond to God in faith by saying yes to his word to you. This is not a grand show of flexing spiritual muscles. It's a demonstration of weakness and simply saying, when God says to move, Lord, I believe you. 
Lord, I trust you, so I'm going to move. When God says to act, it's uncomfortable. It's not what I would have chosen. But Lord, I'm going to act in this way. When God calls you to demonstrate radical selflessness in the giving of your possessions to others in need, you say, but I love those possessions, but on the basis of who you are, God, and what you're asking me to do, I'll give. Friends, this isn't a a spiritual power flex. This is a demonstration of weakness displayed in simple trust. But the one asking you to act loves you, cares for you, and is doing what's best for you and his glory. Because faith is not about itself. It's about its object. We don't strut around going, look at my faith. We strut around saying, look at the one who I trust, who I follow. I mean, it's classic. When, when you're weak, he is strong. Isn't that the essence of what we believe as Christians? So friend, I don't want you to walk away discouraged. I want you to walk away thinking, James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, when wanting to teach in a very succinct and yet powerful letter the essence of faith and could choose anyone in the halls of Christendom, To use as an example, he says, you pagan, come here. You you prostitute, come here. Because I'm going to teach the Christian church what it means to believe in God. Friends, I pray that that's the faith you possess. A faith that trusts and acts. And if it's not, my friend, today is the day to submit to Jesus Christ. Trust him. Put your faith in him and be rescued from your sin and brought into a life with this king of beauty. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God. You are a trustworthy God. I pray that as we look at this passage, our strength would be bolstered and strengthened, that we would, or our faith, rather, Lord, would be strengthened and bolstered, that we would We would trust you all the more, even when it doesn't always make sense. But on the basis of your character, we would trust. And save, Lord, if there's any here who don't know you, may today be the day that they finally bend the knee, submit to Christ as Lord, and enter into the joy-filled, peace-filled experience of being a Christian. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.